Hey everybody, this is Eric Veal with the Abstract Podcast. The Abstract Podcast is your way to find out more tips and tricks about running a successful business, whether you're a, a big timer in a big business or somebody that just has a great idea that they want to get off the ground. Today is our first episode ever recorded, and we just finished the recording, but I'm giving you guys a little intro here. Uh, today on the show, our topic was managing external relationships. And on the show, we had Scott Davis, James Tuff, and Leo Lamb, who are friends of mine from the Seattle area. Uh, Scott is a, an executive that I used to work for in the consulting space. James is uh, also an executive who I've recently met who has a long background in sales. And Leo Lamb is a friend of mine that I met at UW grad school. And Leo is a startup investor and entrepreneur and so forth. But we had a good conversation about managing external relationships. We basically um, concluded by uh, just noticing the importance of external relationships and investors and, and, uh, and shareholders and the board. And so we go into a lot of detail here. I think you'll find most of it very good. And uh, the topic runs just over an hour. So thanks for listening and enjoy the conversation. Okay, so our first question about managing external relationships, let's, let's talk about some of the skills or techniques that go into starting with somebody who perhaps is, is in your network and you'd like to perhaps pursue that individual as a, to have a board seat or to be an investor or somebody perhaps this, this person is famous in your community and you want to kind of um, woo them into the circles of your business and so forth. What... Can you guys give some examples of, of how you've gone about building out boards or investors and what were some of the kind of tricks that you used to doing that? What were some of the pains? And I'll start with, with you, Scott. What, uh, tell us about a few of your experiences just kind of doing this, taking, taking your network or relationships toward kind of a profitable support group. Yeah, I think I'd probably kind of jump midway into my career. And the first thing you really need to figure out is what are your weaknesses? What are those areas where you truly need help? And we all have strengths. We all have weaknesses. And there's this big, over the last couple of years, a lot of us have been reading about mindfulness and, and really kind of getting to know yourself. And I think there's a lot of truth to that in the aspect of, okay, well, I know I'm good at operations. I know I'm good at finance, but I'm really weak in sales. Or if I look at my company's point of view, uh, my company has to have a global reach and I need to be able to uh, reach out to partner channels or I need to be able to uh, identify specific customers. I think you really need to get into what you need from a specific relationship or what you need from a specific advisor um, if I were to rewind the clock and do this all over again and tell my 23-year-old self, what would you do? It would be find those advisors that could give you the right guidance, but you've got to be specific about what you need. Right, right. That makes sense. How, how about you, James? What are some examples? You know, I would follow up with what Scott just mentioned with uh, also looking at when you're picking a strategic partner, you need to really understand them. You need to be patient. You need to, to, you need to get to know them. You need to walk before you run, before you engage too deep. Because when you get engaged in an investment relationship, it's like a marriage, and it's 
there's risk involved on both sides. So you need to get to know them before you, you know, you, you got to make sure that they understand your vision, that they, they buy into your story, um, they share the philosophy, they've got the, the, the right ethics, and the expectations of where you're taking this have got to align because if they don't, they're not the right partner. You know, and so uh, so al alignment is a big part of it, or, or just kind of sharing Absolutely. that at a minimum, you have to know yourself. You need to perhaps market yourself for the particular audience or the particular people that you'd like to attract, knowing that you're not going to have 100% success working with whomever you want to necessarily. It is a process. It does take time. Yeah, I, I think the one thing that I, I build on all of that is getting to know yourself, um, don't underestimate that. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that I learned during the whole 10 years of Blue Water was it took me four years to kind of figure out what it is that I wanted to accomplish more in, in life because whatever organization you create is gonna be a direct reflection of yourself, like it or not. Mm -hmm. It's gonna come with its positive, it's gonna come with your negatives. So the more you're aware of what those negatives could be, the more you could head off cultural issues down the road. Sure. So, so how about you, Leo? What, what are some examples of people who you kind of recruited knowing perhaps some strengths, strengths or weaknesses about yourself and kind of identified individuals that you felt could best even you out or balance you out or kind of ex extend your value for your audience? Yeah, extending on the points that Scott uh, has started, it's alignment, it's knowing yourself, and on top of that is humility. So once you have found the alignment and knowing that, that you don't know everything, uh, you may not actually want someone who just agree with you all the time. You actually want someone who has been there, done that, and uh, listen to them and see how they can work with you. Now, I have been on both sides of that table, uh, being recruited and, and recruiting. The, um, I would say the most important thing really is a cultural fit. And the ethics and integrity, those are the, the minimum bar. You have to meet those bars first, and then you have to make sure there's a cultural fit. Now, the, the best people when they came to me, and this is about feeling as well, right? If someone comes to you uh, to say asking for, for uh, mentorship or about being on a board of advisor, make it clear that's what you're going for. Uh, as soon as you notice that's the case, then you know, let's say when I hear those things, okay, oh, okay, that's your expectation. I need to start thinking about my time how much time I have in the future, whether I even have enough bandwidth mm -hmm. to do that. So res respect that as well on the people you ask for. And uh, they may say no, but of course, that's the worst thing that can happen to you. It's not so bad. So part of it's setting, setting expectations. If, if, uh, if we're first clear about who we are, what are, what are our strengths and weaknesses, who, who we want to identify, who are kind of candidate people who are in our funnel of, of advisors or board or investors or what have you, and we kind of have our list and we're working our list and we start to get further and further with those relationships. And then, then we have partners, we have 
perhaps a board of advisors or directors or whatever it might be, we have, have been lucky to re receive some investment. Once we're kind of established and have, and have a few more things in place, then what? what? What do the challenges become once you are kind of operating? Is it, is it always a process of what do I need to do now? Um, who else do I need now? Or how do you basically leverage the relationships you've created so that you're better next time or you're better, better now than you were a year ago? Well, it, it always, I think it, it progresses with maturity of yourself, maturity of your business. Uh, I think that's just a natural thing that happens. The advisors that I had around me in 2000 to 2003 were much different in 2004 to 2008, which were much different than 2010 to now. It kind of grows with you, but you have to be aware of where am I, where do I need to take the company? Where am I headed? And what my weaknesses were yesterday are not going to be the same as they were later on. Um, so you have to be looking at it from, you're starting out, the best thing you can do is have the right counsel. Whether you call it advisors, whether you call it mentors, get the right three to five people around you that you can go to that have been there, done that for you. Mm -hmm. Now, once you're in flight and you have all of this going on, things change. Um, things of, well, I do need to raise capital. That takes a certain type of person, perhaps like Leo does, has that experience. It takes um, governance. It takes risk management. Um, it takes public relations. There's a lot of different a aspects you have to begin to think about, um, and you recruit differently. You know, if I need a risk management professional, I might be looking at somebody in the legal profession or insurance profession or that has run that risk management from a board point of view and work with them very closely because that might be a weakness. Right, yeah, I think, I think the assessment part of just kind of where we, where we begin with a clear assessment in the APQC model just before they get to managing external relationships is the risk compliance and resiliency mm -hmm. thing where um, some people's opinion is that if you don't have a business continuity plan, for example, that is your biggest risk. You don't have a plan. You don't know what the future holds or where you're going or what your exit strategy is, for example, then, um, but yeah, so, so the, the operating part, I guess, James, James or Leo, Leo tell, tell us more about um, once you're kind of there and established and you feel like you have the basic capa capability of better advice, better advisors, more, um, you know, people who can tell you the truth and, you know, uh, benefits of particular approach, approaches, how do you how do you leverage that? Is is that just a leadership trait to be able to listen and and use what you have? But then there's there's always more. I have to imagine you always you never probably can get good enough advice. It always kind of comes back to your shoulders. I would think as a leader, or decider, or what have you, it's it's still your fault, still your problem as the CEO. Well, absolutely. Um, you know, I I think. When you engage in, you know, external relationships, I think what you've got to do is you got to assess. You got to really understand what you need. I mean, what is it a talent that I'm looking for? Uh, do they have relationships that I'm trying to develop? I mean, um, do they bring a, a customer base that I'm looking for? Is it technology? Um, you know, what's, what do they really, really bring? Um, 
And what's the value that I could get out of that relationship if it's high? What value do I bring to them? I mean, and if we find that this aligns that a relationship uh, could propel our business in the right direction, you know what? That's something to invest a lot of energy and time into. But uh, I think, it, you know, you've got to assess it before you, it, it, you've got to be cautious. You've got to be cautious. You can't just jump into a relationship without really understanding what, what's, what the risk is and what the opportunity is. How about you, Leo, stories on that? Yeah, good stories always come in the, the same theme. Uh, there are, I think the, um, I think uh, Scott brought up something really, really important and uh, it's the fact that one really has to know themselves. The second part is, once you have those relationships with your board of advisors or board of directors lined up, use them, but use them with immense honesty. You don't want them to, you don't want to influence them to give you an answer that you want to hear. You want to give them exactly what is going on. Don't sugarcoat if something's not going well. Because these are the people that can help you get out of the rut. Another thing is uh, about the growth of this uh, external relationship uh, circle, maybe involving more people. Most good board advisors or advisors that I personally know, all of them also know themselves very well. And that's a, that's a very common trait. And they would say, all right, you are heading into territory that I'm not familiar with. Maybe I can introduce you to someone that I know who have the, the relevant experience. Leverage that, use that again with honesty, just saying, okay, we don't know this. I don't know this. You don't know this, but you know someone who does. Let's try and, and, and leverage that. So, so perhaps a, a bit of a diversion, but there's personal, this is a kind of a direct question maybe to Scott or just anybody can kind of weigh in, but there's, there's the individual level of my strengths are the following things. I can talk good, I'm whatever they might be. Um, so there, there's the individual level of my capabilities, strengths and weaknesses are the following things, know yourself. And then the flip side of it is know your organization or the degree to which you are a good leader who can use the talents of your company and your people and all of the things you basically built or brought to bear. Um, do we think of all of those things as external relationships? The, the topic beyond this topic in the APQC model, which is next month or next episode perhaps, is, is building your business capabilities. So, so the, the one prior to managing external relationships is risk compliance and resiliency. It's that kind of assessment of where am I at on the spectrum of what are my opportunities, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, uh, you know, what are my risks and problems and issues? What is the degree to which just basically get a score and a baseline on the thing? And then, and then it feels to me like managing external relationships is this tool of like, now that I know, what am I going to do? And your, your primary tool there is you're going to look out into your network and find, find external relationships, call them what you will, that you're going to use to respond to your risks or issues. Sure. I think I would call it responding to what gaps you have currently, right? So we might, as your business matures, your advice might be around finance or it might be around legal or it might be around uh, insurance, right? 
And so my advisor base is going to change. I know through experience that today my weakness is not finance. But I filled that gap with having financial advice early on. Mm -hmm. However, once I got into a position of having another external relationship, which was an accounting firm, Mm -hmm. I cannot no longer need that advising resource. I can focus that on, let's focus on business development. Let me pick that one up. And so it changes and evolves. As you close the gaps with professional advice or professional um, input, Mm. you can exchange with different advisors Mm. and it helps you continue to grow. But it's a very important point that that Leo made is be very transparent about the um, commitment and the level of um, duration, if you will, of that relationship. Mm. I think the mistake that I made early on was I didn't define how long I needed a board member for Blue Water or how long how long I needed an investor and for what. Um, I didn't have any idea mm. at that time. I do now. Mm. Um, but back then, it's this ambiguity. You end up just saying, well, do I ignore it and let it run? And in which case, that creates a whole bunch of problems on the back end. Yeah. Um, so definitely get really crystal clear on what you need from them and how long do you need it. Right. So, so that, that's kind of a point about, about hooks or doing it wrong, that there's ways, there's ways to develop relationships. Um, for example, I know, I know somebody that runs a business that has a silent partner that's basically a 51% uh, you know, silent partner in this business slash former investor that got this fellow off the ground with his small uh, clinic years ago, decades ago, really. And so his, it's still there, right? This, this, this guy helped him and helped him really have a great life, basically. I mean, he, he has a, a business that he wants and so forth and so on, but he happens to have this silent investor with whom he has very little of uh, much of a relationship, basically, and it's, uh, it's tough, right? He didn't think it through, he didn't know, like he probably knew what he wanted and so forth, but I guess one, once you've established those things, so there, there's, there's something that's, that's purely, um, mm, uh, not ambiguous, but just undefined. It's like, oh yeah, well let's let's work together, kind of. But at some point, it it comes to paper, and then, and then once it's on paper, it's a different different level. Well, you bring up a very interesting point, which is this whole concept of control, right? Um, as a entrepreneur, I think the last thing you should really want to give up is control. It happens, um, and it can happen in much different ways. You can lose control without losing majority interest in the company. Um, but generally, those things go hand in hand. Uh, somebody that has got a 51% controlling interest in an organization, in Washington State anyway, um, can pretty much drive it any direction they want. Um, and the minority is unfortunately in a bad position. Um, so as a going back to like the beginning parts of being an entrepreneur and starting up a business, hopefully you don't find yourself in that position of having to give up control of your company. Yeah. Right, which would be kind of a, a, an external relationship gone awry, an external relationship that becomes an internal or intimate relationship where you just kind of didn't do the contracting or thinking of it correctly. You didn't really think about resiliency or agility or whatever. It was just like goal achievement at the time, kind of. It, it happens. I mean, you get into a spot of like, I want a board person to help me get into an account, and that's the very first mistake you make. Um, early on, you might need that because you need to get it off the ground. 
but then what do you do when you don't need that anymore? You know, and so you have to really think about what is the entrance of that agreement and what is the exit of that agreement? What does that really look like? Sure. And how do you maintain that relationship through that process? And there's a level of maturity that comes with knowing what bad outcomes could be and how to avoid them. So what, in your guys' opinion, what, what, would, the, what would an ideal set of, so for a business that is established, so let's say we have a brand new business that we're starting and um, each individually, like we all have our own business, we all own 100% and our own idea, and we go out and try to build the perfect board of advisors and we know we need investors, what is the ideal mix of uh, people and or equity or, or cash or whatever it might be? Like we, we know that we need to give up something in our business to get something. Right? We know we need to sell the value and the, the pieces, kind of shares, if you will, of the company to, to build that team. You, you can't just all do it. And, you know, if, if, you're, if you're a millionaire or whatever to start, you can probably do the whole bootstrap, et cetera, be, be great. But I don't think that's the situation that many people live in. So idealistically, Leo, I'll ask you, I haven't, we haven't heard from you in a bit, but um, idealistically, what would the ideal set of steps be for a CEO to take 100% ownership of a company and then bring it down to the ideal board where equity was given and or set of investors? What's, what's, what's reasonable, I guess, or achievable for an entrepreneur today? So just looking at the latest trend, we'll, we'll, you know, this, these trends change. Uh, and given the, the economic uncertainty right now, the trend's going to change very quickly. Uh, it has slowly... In the past year or so, the, uh, the fact that equity is worth a lot less now uh, because capital is drying up due to uncertainty, due to uh, a, due to a uh, impeding possible recession. So right now, what, what an entrepreneur should look at is one, how much traction do they actually have in their company? If you're pre-revenue, uh, honestly, raising money would be really hard. And if you are raising money, you can expect to give up quite a bit of, of your company. Uh, investors generally expect about 20, 20 to 50 percent, uh, 20 to 40 percent of your company if you're pre-revenue. Uh, it's really hard to um, give a valuation of your company when there's no money uh, in your bank. Now, if you do, uh, you, can you can still raise money with uh, good valuation numbers, but you should remember that whenever you have these external relationships, the receiving side's got to get something as well. So your external partners, your investors need to get something, and you need to understand their perspective on why they're putting money in your company. Number one, uh, reason for any investors is make money. You have to respect that. Uh, investors are not, uh, are not non-profits, right? Some of them, if they have really just way too much money to, to waste, sure. But most investors want their returns. And you have to respect that when you start the conversations uh, with, with your investor, uh, potential investors. 
In terms of board of advisors, I think um, recently the numbers have been ho hovering around 1% uh, of uh, option grants in about, I think vested in about two to three years, two years more common. But depending, again, depending on the stage of your company, if your valuation is really high already and you're recruiting a board of advisor, then maybe half a percent is enough. But if you're a pre-revenue company, expect to give up about 1% over two years. Right. So, so we have a collection of shares or what have you. We, d we decided to kind of divvy, divvy up our, our company, say, into a million shares or what, whatever. And then we had different classes of stock and so forth. And so we, we set aside some of that perhaps for investors, some of that perhaps for, uh, for the board, some of that for other co-founders, people that we might want to entice. But we basically have a pool of shares that we're willing to dole out as... Uh, value to our external relationships? Is that fair categorization? The characterization is correct. The structure is a little different. Uh, most of the time, the, uh, you should have an option pool for people you want to bring into your company as, as internal people. Uh, the earlier you are, the bigger the option pool you want to have, just to make sure that when you know when you exit, everyone should be a millionaire. At least they, they should get a very good returns for taking the risk of working with a startup company and giving up their time instead of working for Microsoft, Amazon, uh, and taking a lower salary. Right now, with investors, normally the stocks would be newly uh, would be uh, an add-on new issues. Uh, they would not be the original amount of stock. So it's, it's going to be a, that's why it's called pre-money and post-money valuation, right? Post-money is the money you put on top of the money, uh, the valuation that you currently have. So all the stocks that are, that investors uh, get would be newly issued stock. Uh, most likely, if you want to raise the fund quickly, uh, make it a preferred set of stocks so the investors would get returns first when you get an exit. So, so there's a bunch of kind of like strategy and, and carrots and sticks and, and things that you kind of need to do with your corporate, corporate governance early on. I, I think you can kind of go into it 100% blind and, and just do things randomly, but uh, probably with good advice and or with good advisors and or with reading the right books. Are, are there any uh, books or, or resources that you guys could refer uh, an early stage person to or somebody that's not 100% uh, comfortable with these concepts of kind of is again it's to me it's the managing external relationships topic is how do you how do you take an entity and go out into the world not sell the farm on your IP but still continue to attract individuals who you know like and trust to your business and and there's something in it for you there's something in it for them you build an equitable company that is sustainable and good and whatnot I would say Right now, uh, given, given the lovely thing called the internet, uh, you can find a lot of venture capitalists openly writing about why they invest, why they don't. And uh, when they don't, they normally don't name who it is. But uh, if they do, they would tell you why they invest in it. They are pretty open about it. Also, this is also their way of managing external relationship. They want to get relevant deals 
that, to go to them. So that's another way of thinking about it, is they gave something, which is information, and potential capital injection, and they receive external leads that are actually qualified, quote unquote qualified, to, to be invested by their, their funds. So for entrepreneurs, look up all the uh, major, major VCs' blogs. It also applies to how angel investors think as well, except that VC tend to be a little bit later stage now. Angels takes care of most of the early funding at this point. Uh, but the idea is the same. The ideas, the, what they want, are not different. Yeah. yeah, and I would say if you take that theme of external relationships, there's no reason as an entrepreneur to not sit down with the VC. Uh, yes, you have to network and, and get to know who they are and what they're about. But most of them, in my experience, have been willing to take a meeting. And it isn't about buying or selling a particular company. It is about getting to know what it is that they look for. What are they doing today? What are they going to do next week? You begin to understand how they value companies, what they typically invest in. Um, and so you begin early on to think about, well, if I'm going to have to take money in to get this idea off the ground, I better find out who has the right structure and the right culture to help me do that. Yeah. Because there's many, many VCs out there in the Seattle area and the West Coast and nationally. Find the ones that are willing to sit down with you and talk about what they're interested in. Mm -hmm. uh, but start keeping that in the back of your mind as you develop your company. Mm -hmm. It's a relationship that you may or may not drive on or, or go to. But if you have somebody in your back pocket you can call and get an idea on what the acquisition was or what their interest might be in, in investing, great. It's going to help you as a business owner either way. And, and the, the investors are just a class of it as well, right? Like we're, we're I, I don't want to think of investors as holistically, like if I think of external relationships or giving out equity in my company or whatever at all, I don't want to think of that necessarily within the category of if I have five, then five will go to investors eventually or whatever. I, I think it has to be some larger pool where in, but there's some investor pool and there's some, you know, other sets of pools. I need to, I don't know if it's a slice of the pie type of issue, but I, I want to, I guess I want to think of myself as having value or assets or, or something to give. And I want to make sure that I control that within some domain such that like when I'm talking to investors, it's about this much or this big. And when I'm talking to uh, perhaps other co-founders or anybody else that I want to come in and work with me early stage as far as like labor goes or whatever, then that to me is a different kind of category. It is a different category. And the thing is, it changes, right? It's dilution happens and it's going to happen for a lot of different reasons. Whether it's you've got new executives joining the team, you have a new partner joining the team, you have a new investor coming on board. Dilution happens. But be comfortable with other people owning shares in your company. You know, I'm thinking that for the people that are going to be listening to this podcast, it might be valuable to have some conversation about the types of mistakes that early investors actually make, things that, you know, best practices. Leo, you're, uh, I know you're, you probably have some experience in this, but, you know, things like... Um, listening. I mean, I, I, I think that there's, there's some good advice out there. People will tell you what to, if you, if you don't listen, um, you, you're, 
you know, you're, you've got to pay attention. You've got to hear what people are saying. And, uh, uh, you know, so, and, and things like exaggerating forecasts. I mean, I, I see this a lot, you know. We're going to do <laughs> the hockey stick. It's, it's like reality. You've got to be integral when you're talking to people because if you're not, you know, uh, there's no trust. Is there a way, I'm totally with you on that, um, is, is there a way, do you guys think it's responsible or irresponsible to uh, manage all relationships in business as external relationships, which the, the word that came to my mind a couple minutes ago was severability, is that, that uh, with employees or with investors or with whatever, it's that you kind of want to contract in such the way, such the way that you have the option to exit if it's not working out. Like you don't want to really make too many decisions that are all in and forever. Um, you, with respect to like uh, resiliency in business, you want to build a business that's built to last and built all these kinds of things. You know, you want that, but with respect to any given relationship with any single entity, to me, it's severable. It's it's. Uh, it's potentially temporary depending on some criteria or value. Is that, is that like irresponsible and rude to, to like, to be impolite to individuals to say like, listen, this is my business. Uh, you know, I appreciate your help. The terms are the following things is like, how important is contracting in those terms and or like terms of severability and, or would people perceive that as this is a paranoid individual who clearly can't collaborate with me. Mm, I think it depends on the context, quite honestly. Um, what I mean by that is if you come out of the gate and you're positioning yourself like you have some sort of leverage over the investor and you're an early stage company, the reality is you don't. Um, so it's either you either need this money to help you grow or you don't. Yeah. You don't have to take the investment, um, but you certainly do not want to come across um, like you have some sort of command and control over the investment's money. It, it just isn't going to happen. Um, if you come across as how does it benefit the team and how does it benefit the shareholders and owners and how do I get it so that it does go from $10 million to $50 million in the course of two years, great. Have a plan. Have that conversation. Whether or not that's real, that should be the conversation. Um, but I don't know of an investor group that would necessarily deal with a CEO or owner that has a um, uncooperative point of view, because um, it, it's a need, right? And whether it's debt, whether it's equity investment or capital, um, there's a need there for the business, and you have to make sure you make the right decision there. Um, but your investment organization is your team, and, and you got to kind of keep that in mind, just like you do with your employees and everything else. Yeah, that's a really good point. The moment uh, an investor give you money, he or she would be on your team. And in fact, they now have uh, great incentive to see you succeed. Uh, you should treat them that way. Uh, you should kind of be grateful to them that they take a big risk with their money. They could invest in Seattle real estate and make 16% a year. Um, but instead, they give it to you uh, at the risk of getting zero. 
Um, although on the upside, you know, one out of 10 may hit a, a 10x in five, five years goal, but that also averaged out to being at most 20% a year. So you, you can't just break those relationships. Yes, the Board of Advisors, the, those agreements generally have a severability uh, uh, terms in them. Investors, you don't. Now, that means investor, when you choose investors, you've got to choose investors that can help you. If your company is new, uh, one, you really, you should need help. If, unless you have done it three times already, then you absolutely need help. You need more help than just their money. Uh, go to them, ask, ask for it. Humility is a, is a hard thing to learn. I remember when I was in my 20s, you know, I know everything. Well, no, I don't. <laughs> uh, I, that's one thing I would love to tell my, my, myself, you know, many, many years ago, that, you know, you don't. Even with the internet, you can't find everything. So, and also, if you want to think about it, purely in financial terms, angels, VCs, monies are actually really expensive. Your cost of capital is 70%. 58 to 71 percent, it depends on the, the length of your exit. It's really expensive money. Uh, if, you don't, if, you, if you can get money elsewhere from a bank, from, from uh, PO financing, depending on what you're doing, get those. Uh, if you just need the money and don't need the advice or the, the relationship. Uh, but if you do, uh, start listening and respect that the fact that they are in the same team as you. Even though they might be tough on you sometimes, there must be a reason for that. And, and see if you can hear their underlying reasons. I think regardless of where the money comes from, an important thing for anybody that's starting a business or kind of now looking at expanding and using capital to do it, there comes, whether it's a bank, the SBA, friends and family, investors, there's a performance expectation that comes along with it. Mm -hmm. The true investment organizations have a very formal clawback process that if you don't hit your targets, you're, something's going to happen. Banks, it's more of a balance sheet function. Um, they're all there. And the performance expectations, they only increase. And so be very mindful of that going into um, raising money or, or taking on debt. It's, it's reality. Right. Which kind of gets into, this isn't maybe the perfect segue, but gets into fraud or whatever. Like if, you, if you're a bad CEO or a bad person or whatever and you take all kinds of money and things and this and that and the other thing and you don't really feel like indebted necessarily to pay it back or whatever, you kind of got, you know, be, because of your own talent or well, whatever, you kind yeah. of have some funny money to play yeah. with. Fiduciary responsibility is huge. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say that the moment you begin thinking about mm -hmm taking other people's money to help grow your organization, that would be the trigger point to have a board. Yeah. Um, because that board has that fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders, albeit the majority of the ownership goes to the founder at the moment. But as the company matures, that dilutes and becomes different. But it's the shareholder mind that the board protects, mm -hmm. or interest, rather. So... If that's their job, then having a strong board is really get that going. Mm -hmm. Whether And if you're an LLC, it's a board of advisors. If you're a corporation, it's a board of directors. Mm -hmm. um, great. Get it done. Because 
that then becomes this more formal platform where that investor is going to feel more comfortable. Hell, wait, he's got the CIO from Ford on his board. He's got the executive vice president from Microsoft on his board. They have experience where this individual may or may not. I get more comfortable in that. And what are, what are the steps between, or what, what comes first, the um, board of directors or advisors and or the operating team? What are the, so if there is a milestone within businesses that they are qualified to receive outside capital and that, that one of the requirements for outside capital is that there's a board to manage the outside capital and or to like steer the CEO toward da-da-da. Obviously, the, the flip side of that, at least in my mind, is that the CEO is also working with his executives or leadership team or whatever to execute. And um, it just feels like there's a lot of, at least to me, um, people, obviously, that, that the CEO needs to work with on all sides of the table. You, Absolutely. You need to build do. the top yeah. and you need to build the capability, like the ability to deliver or yeah, whatever. You're, you're building up and you're building down. It, and you're maintaining peer relationships, whether it be competitive or partner relationships. I mean, as a CEO, your responsibility is immense. Um, and, and it's probably one of the most lonely jobs you'll ever have. Um, I mean, it's the truth because you really you look at like I can talk to the board about this, or I can talk to a C, my COO about this, but I can't talk to my COO about what the board thinks that their role is or isn't in the organization. Um, it becomes very binding. But building a board helps you with the investments that that need to be made in your company. It, you get the counsel. It's for me, it was like risk management. I knew enough to know that I didn't know everything. And if I had the right counsel, at least I could avoid some of the bigger mistakes. And that's important. The investors know it, I think. I don't know what your guys' experience has been there, but mm-hmm. um, you, you do have to work up and work down and across. And I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about... Um, for me personally, how valuable this conversation actually is, is because I'm in a startup project and it's an LLC, we're moving to a corporation, do not have a board of directors. We are so incredibly busy being tactical and executing and developing the platform, bringing on customers, getting them engaged, that there's so much that, that we need to do. And I'm sitting here thinking, you know, and and a lot of our investors, we've done convertible notes with, Mm -hmm. and which has worked, which has worked. And so it's, you know, now we're moving to a, we're we're maturing enough to, we're moving to a corporation. We're starting to engage with bigger investors. And I was thinking, I need to get a board of directors. <laughs> well, that's what it feels like. And I, I'm, I'm earlier stage than that. I think for me, so my, my meetup, for example, I've gotten to meet and know people like you, James, for example. And, um, and so I guess I kind of think in many ways that these people that I meet through the community, boy, that sure would be nice if at some point I actually was A, clear enough on my business plan and B, that I could use those people to direct and advise me towards like what, you know, vision types of stuff. What, what, what looks the best, what would sell the best. And, you know, so that, that, that type of advice to me is priceless. 
and then and then still I still need to have my execution team I still need to have my leadership team or whatever or you know how, however I build up the capability of my business I and I do work on that as well that I've got um, you know my marketer slash tech buddy and I've got a couple of the marketer slash tech people and I've got the more of the database type of person and so I've, I've built up the capability to execute a lot more but it always feels like this building thing where I'm never quite there or never quite good enough and or I don't know if, if you guys have experienced things like that but it's it's a it's it's a battle you got to keep going it is I, I think it gets complicated and in, in my experience I always have felt overly responsible I look at every aspect of my business and I feel responsible whether it is for our compensation plans, our insurances, our um, when somebody's let go, when it is a individual doesn't work out, when opening a new market either works or doesn't work. Um, I am the one that has been responsible for that in the past, and that can cloud your reality and say, okay, well, having outside counsel to say, hey, James, this kind of went down this way in Atlanta. Am I, is, what am I missing with the events there? Um, that stuff is so important. It also kind of helps validate that you're not as screwed up as you think you are. Yeah, Scott's a good CEO. <laughs> yeah, taking too much responsibility. It, it's, it, it, being, being responsible to at least people who rely on you to get a paycheck is, is a big responsibility. And it, again, that is, you're right, a very lonely thing to do because you alone seriously at the end the buck stop with you right and uh, but it, it's another important thing uh, would, would be uh, with these external relationships is delegate delegate those burden and maybe other people have a bigger hammer than you uh, once you have this little burden hand it off to that person ask for that they, they might just put their tiny little bit of the hammer down and your problem solved Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, take a look at, so as a CEO, you, you kind of first go into the thing going, I'm responsible for everything, but I'm not good at everything. And you have to figure out what you're not good at and delegate those things to people that are more capable. You know, there are different types of CEOs. I am, if I classify myself, I am an operational CEO, very good at finance, very good at operations, not very good at selling, in my, in my opinion because I see better examples of CEOs that are very good selling CEOs, but their back office is a disaster, right? And so there's, there's different types. Early stage companies, there needs to be that CEO that is a seller, that is a visionary, that is driving where that thing is going. If you've got that passion, um, great, it's gonna go a long ways because you're gonna go quickly to revenue. If you don't have that, but you're perhaps a technologist that has a great solution, but failing to sell it, solve that gap as fast as you can. This episode of the AppsJack podcast is brought to you by Adventag. Adventag is a leading Seattle-based data-as-a-service company that helps e-commerce store owners running Shopify or Magento gain many new insights in their data through its trained staff and machine learning algorithms. Go to adventag.com slash appsjack today to start reaping the rewards of increased sales. That's A-D-V-E-N-T-A-G dot com. 
what is the question there? I, what I'm basically saying is I know my weaknesses for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, I'm maybe not 100% clear on them, but I'm, I'm more of a technologist. I'm more of a solution guy. I'm more of an engineer. I'm probably better as a COO than a CEO. I'm really kind of similar to you, perhaps in a lot of ways. Like I'm, I'm, and James is a salesperson. Like James, James lives for sales and sales and selling. And that's his expertise and capability. And he knows to work with people like us to deliver. And, and so I think being clear on those at least two issues of vision and strategy and or operations versus selling per se and the marketing slash customer, they're two different sides to the coin. And if you try to, if, you, if you're delusional to think that you can necessarily do all those things really well, as an individual, it's very rare. Oh, it'll crush you. I mean, it doesn't even seem it possible. Will, it will crush you at scale. Yeah. So doing 200 or maybe even a million dollars, yes, you can do it all. You can cover it, no, not a problem. But the minute you get outside of no man's land, which in my opinion is 10 million in revenue and beyond that, you will get crushed. Yeah. You need the support. Yeah. And going back to James' uh, question earlier about mistakes, this is one thing that we see a lot uh, in especially technologist uh, founders. They are, for some reason, I mean, I am a technologist, my, my background is hard science, and uh, the, for, for some reason, they really think that they can do everything. Uh, they have not been exposed to the business side of stuff, development, strategies. Um, they, they were not, a lot of them are unaware of the fact that they have the same 168 hours as everyone else does. And also, they may not be very good at certain stuff. Uh, sales, sales is a big thing that I, I think a lot of technologists fail to realize. It's actually a thing. You don't just build something cool and expect people to come. That does not happen. That worked out really beautifully in 2008. <laughs> um, and so people, but we, we, are, we are slowly seeing another group of technologists that are going back to that same historical era, making that same mistakes. But if you can leverage a good board, a board of advisors or board of directors, they can help you fill the blind spots. But of course, in, in the beginning, you have to have that humility to know that you don't know everything. And, and Leo, you're an interesting case of this, like you said. You, tell us more about your background. So you came, you started with a scientific background, and then I met you in business school, right? Yeah, like yeah. You're, he, you're a scientist, yep. and then you, you got the MBA type of stuff as well because that was, I imagine, like a blind spot to you or a curiosity. Like there, you know that there's another side of the coin. You can't just be smart and not understand business or selling or etc. marketing. Yeah, you, you can't. Um, I have a very weird background. I started off as, as an opera singer um, and a race car driver. But uh, also, but right, but uh, all, all my degrees are in electrical engineering, you know, bachelor and master PhDs. Uh, and I did, you know, business school with, with Eric. Um, when I got the chance to go to business school, uh, thank, thanks to UW, I got it for free. Uh, and the, the major thing is I already started a few companies uh, and have worked for many years. Uh, the best part about the, the business program was it helps me organize all the quote-unquote common sense that I thought I already had. 
but I lacked the, the organization of those common senses and put them into use. It's always kind of scattered. But what, what's great about business school is they put it all into a, a reasonably flexible framework uh, that, that I can then execute on and know, okay, I really can't do that part very well. I can do it, but I don't want to. <laughs> and that's the point where you, can, you, you need to learn how to get uh, other people involved. Because you met people in that class, for example, where it was just very clear that they were better about that thing, and it gave you a better sense of your strengths and weaknesses and, and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, and also, not, not just, uh, not just in, in those classes, and, but it's also when, once you have a framework, uh, I reflected on what I have done in the past and noticed, oh, I should have, oh, I should have, oh, I should have. But almost all of the I should have came, uh, involved people, involved things that I don't want to do that other people want to do more than I do and can do better than I do. So I'm, not, I'm also not a superb salesman, even though my mother said I could sell eyes to Eskimos. But uh, I, I'm not. I, I really am not. I'm, I'm not good at cold calling. I, I don't know. You know. Uh, but regardless, that's, uh, it's, a, it's a huge wake-up call when I know this, okay, yeah, I have a PhD, doesn't mean I'm the smartest guy in the world. There are millions of PhDs out there. And there are PhDs in sales, right? So, exactly. Exactly. So I don't know everything. And it, honestly, a lot of the best people don't have PhDs. They're just good at something, really, really good at something. And I, I would just bow down to them for, for what they can do. Uh, so I think a big chunk of this ultimately comes down to, to knowing weakness and humility. Back to the beginning. Back to the beginning. I think to answer, I think, James's question, I was thinking, okay, what mistake did I make as a business owner when I had my first investors? And I think the mistake I made was giving away equity in exchange for their help but not defining what the successful outcome really should be. Um, it got myself in this trap of like, okay, I know I needed help. I know I'm weak in sales. I'm going to give away equity in my company in exchange for growth ideas or, or sales. Problem is, is early on, I didn't define what those objectives really would look like. What are the activities? What are the results that I expect? Um, and so I ended up, very expensive mistake is when you do that, you soon realize your mistake, and guess what? The minute somebody has equity in your company, the only way to get them out is to buy it back. Right. So, so it gets very expensive. So, so in your case, it, you would have been better suited with a partner that could help you with, with strategic planning or visioning or setting the objectives like you say, that rather, rather than help as sales or whatever it would be like that's that was perhaps what was visible to you that you wanted or needed sales yeah, and it's it's more of i chose the wrong investment partner in that particular case because i needed help i needed help in the growth aspect of the organization i didn't do enough diligence around were, was this firm actually capable of delivering on that i chose incorrectly yeah. and it's my fault which is totally that's totally fine we all make mistakes on that so it goes back to if you need help in sales or if you need help in operations, interview like crazy and find the right ones. Don't just 
take the first one that comes along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I uh, I would not name companies, but there uh, there has been one that I have been exposed to uh, within the past two three years, and what happened was they gave away, um, and this is actually about co-founders too. Um, so this person who is a technologist gave away a bunch of equity to co-founders. And these co-founders were, um, they have their own agenda. Um, they didn't get the cultural fit with the CEO. Um, yeah, granted they had some early successes, but very quickly when uh, the CEO, when, when these co-founders realized that their own uh, honestly, fairly selfish agendas can no longer be carried out. Uh, they left. They just say, "Oh, I'm leaving. Bye." Uh, but they are holding on these equity. Uh, those were not. Those were uh, granted equities. These are not options, so they can't just say, "Oh, we didn't execute." Uh, so now, all of a sudden, this company is stuck with. 40 plus, uh, about 30, 40 percent worth of equity out there that are non-performing. What does that mean? They would never raise money again. And because all the investors would look at the cap table mm -hmm. and say, hey, these guys own this much of your company. What are they doing? I think it's very costly. So the first step that that investor would have to take to move it forward is to buy the old ones out. Yeah. And it's very expensive. And so it's, you're not going to win that. I ran into that too with another hardware company where 10 years ago they'd taken on a team of investors of 12, basically friends and family. Um, they had to pivot. What they were doing over the last 10 years was no longer working. And so it's going to take new capital to make them achieve that pivot. The first step that would have to have been made was to buy out the old investors. Nobody wants to do it because it's throwing away money at that point. So, so you can go very wrong with this stuff, really. You can you can do it wrong. Yeah. You can create a bunch of baggage and whatnot that that hamstrings you, really. Absolutely. And I mean, when you get into your point, Scott, is great because when you get into a, a relationship, a business relationship, you've got to have performance metrics mm -hmm. that are based over time and performance. Um, you know, some of the some of the engagements I've, I'm doing right now with the, um, you know, key hires is, is, is that vesting happens over a four-year period right. of time. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a certain lump sum that you're going to get after year one, but then it vests, mm -hmm. you know, so you're kind of protecting yourself from well, people yeah. leaving, you know, prematurely, and they've got 5% of your company. Vesting is very critical. Well, vesting, vesting is critical to top performers, but I'd, before you even get there, think about what in the world is the worst possible thing that could happen, whether it be a partner, an employee, an investor. Right. Imagine what that is. Then you construct your agreements around that inevitable event, because it will happen. And so if you back up to the beginning of another external relationship, it's legal, you know? Um, you can way overspend on legal, but you can also choose to ignore it, which gets you in trouble. Mm -hmm. um, but you have to think about, okay, I have a partner. We're 50-50 in this deal of 49-51. What happens if 
they die or they're incapacitated or they no longer want to help, how do we protect the company going forward? Does it continue to go forward? Does it collapse? Um, what do you do if the person gets a divorce? How do you handle that? Do you want, you know, and most legal contracts now address all these things. And so any good business attorney is going to be worth their weight in gold in getting this stuff set up contractually correct. Um, you can Early on, you can get yourself in trouble with just verbal contracts. Yeah, hey, that sounds great. Emotional. Love it. Great, I'm going to get Microsoft out of this conversation, you know. Don't do it. Get get your contracts right from the very beginning. And uh, get a very good insurance broker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's another external relationship that um, to this day, you know, I still I use the same accounting team, legal team, and insurance team that I have over the past 16 years because they know me, I know them, and we have a way of, of talking about it, and so it does save money, actually. I don't have to bring them up to speed on everything. Um, but those are another key, those are three key external relationships for a business owner. Absolutely. Very good. Any, anything else? We're coming up at about an hour now. Anything else that's top of mind for you guys or any other points you want to make? Anything to Im- impose upon the audience to think, of, think, think about or consider? I, you know, I, I think one of the things that I've learned is, and Scott just addressed it, up front early on, make sure you understand your your the, the business that you're in. Get good legal advice. I mean, legal is fundamentally some of the best money you can spend when you're starting a business. You, it's it's kind of critical. You really do you need to make sure that you protect yourself. Agreed. And also, if you are if at any point you think that your company would be a, a big high growth company that you inevitably would need to raise money, uh, the legal structure, the, the, the corporate structure of your company is going to derail or advance your, your agenda in fundraising. If you start off as an LLC, you need to change to a C-Corp. It's actually a very ugly thing and expensive thing to do. Um, another thing that I think people who... Um, especially in Washington State, uh, should realize whether you want to recruit a board of directors or become someone's board of directors is that you may, you may want to know that board of directors actually, actually have uh, direct responsibility for payroll. Um, and they, they actually are personally liable for, pay, for missing payroll. Yeah, Washington, Washington State's an interesting case study in that the corporation can be liable as well as individuals liable and it's not just payroll it's decision making so if an officer chooses to dismiss somebody for inappropriate reasons the company is liable and that individual is liable and if the additional officers knew about it they're liable of course it all depends on what all that is the point is is that just means your insurance your dno coverages have to be there your policies and procedures absolutely have to be there. Um, those are there's very formal things that you have to think about and address, and it's very easily missed by um, people that are brand new to business that get really excited about their idea, get excited about their technologies, and they don't want to get weighted down by this 
administrivia, right? It's like, oh my God, I don't want to worry about insurance or payroll. And it's like, no, it, it can take you down if you don't do it right. Very good. Yeah. So, yeah, so the, the right governance, it's, it's, uh, it's not what every probably CEO wants to hear is that they have to go and do all that kind of due diligence and, and whatnot, not on the market, not on the customer, not on really anything else. It's just readiness and preparedness to do business. Like you're, you're going to war ultimately. Your, you know, it's it's yeah. your 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 yourself is on the line and so forth, and and your company, and if you want that company to be a big good thing, you better lawyer lawyer up. I hate that to be the final. I hate, I hate, that, term. I hate that to be really the final do. message. But have have a good have a good attorney. And I think the other thing is building on, on Leo's point would be if you have an exit in mind. You know what? And someday I'm going to sell this, or someday it's going to be uh, just transition the majority of it to a PE company or something like that. The other ironclad thing you can do is get, get your accounting audit procedures going as soon as possible. Because guess what? If I have audited books from day one, from year one, I go to sell my company or I go to get investment, my financials are not the question. And I avoid any devaluation that comes along with that. And also fixing accounting problems hmm? is way more expensive Yeah, I think one, it's the sheer trustworthiness of the company, but to the legal exposure, you know, if you misrepresent there is, is disastrous. So, so, so can, can, can we quickly rattle off what are the external relationship agreements legally that we need to have? What is, what is the paper? So I'm just brainstorming here, but I think... For example, you'd have a subcontractor agreement. You have, I mean, what are, what are the different classes? And we maybe don't need to really necessarily enumerate it now, but um, that, that to me, honestly, looking at it as a project manager, tell me my scope. My scope is, is these things. These are the named documents that I need to buy. How much are they? Who is going to supply them to me, and is it good, uh, good language? Well, let's assume for a moment that it's a legal entity, whether it's LLC or C-Corp, S-Corp structure in Washington State. Each state's different for registration and whatnot, but you've got a shareholder agreement, you've got bylaws, you've got... Um, what else we have out there? For ESD, you need employee handbook. That's true, pretty much employee handbook, certainly. Um, I'd say the one that's most common that comes up with a lot of startups is getting that mutual NDA right. Right, yeah. Um, getting your PII agreement right. So if you're a software organization or software startup, protecting your intellectual property is very, very important. Um, yep. So, I mean, if you look at the paperwork of getting just a company formed and started, you're probably spending about a thousand bucks. You know, Is that all? Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's also, really not that difficult to do. It's pretty much template. Yeah, yeah, and also um, there there are some resources out there. One one of my favorite is uh, the former director for Microsoft Accelerators, uh, Makun Mohan. He has a great website, and he actually uploaded a set of documents on there that people can download and uh, modify, basically change the names uh, and, and state. And uh, yeah, his name is Mukund, M-U-K-U-N-D, Mohan, M-O-H-A-N. Uh, he 
started and sold multiple companies, and he, he's very generous to, to the startup community. And uh, that website, uh, his, his words, and also uh, the documents, is just a fantastic resource. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's wrap it up based on that. So just concluding a little bit. So really the purpose of this podcast in many ways is helping, helping entrepreneurs get ready for battle. And, and so the, the managing external relationships is, is clearly a key one. There's many more vision strategy products and the, you know, there's so much goes into, to building it. This isn't, this isn't necessarily the, the most fun one. It's not the one that will, uh, you know, excite, excite the most people. But um, it's a key capability that um, that all of us have. Um, so thanks, thanks everybody for coming. James, do you have a last thought? You have a no, comment? No, just thank you for thinking of me and inviting me to this because it's a great conversation. Sure. Uh, it's I learned a lot. Thanks. So the the next the next conversation, uh, both at the meetup and on the podcast, will be about. Uh, developing and managing business capabilities. So this this is an example of one business capability. There's there's ten more, and um, actually there's eleven more, including the capability of building capabilities. Right. So that's like the meta. That's the meta topic next month. Um, but anyway, so look forward to you guys joining us next time. And thanks for thanks for your contributions. And I hope you learned something. Thanks for having us. Sir. Yeah. Thanks for having us. And uh, happy listening. You have been listening to the Abstract Podcast. The creator and host of this podcast is Eric Veal. This episode's guests have been Scott Davis, James Tuff, and Leo Lamb. It was recorded, engineered, and produced by Christian Harris. You can contact us and find all our show notes on our website at abstract.libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N. If you like what you hear on this podcast, let us know by writing us a very nice five-star review on iTunes and subscribing. You can also find out more by going to appsjack.com slash meetup to get more information on this month's topic and the corresponding meetup group that Eric hosts in Bellevue, Washington each month. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next month for our next episode of the AppsJack podcast. This has been a Seatown Media production. Find out more at seatownmedia.com, S-E-A hyphen townmedia.com. Thanks.